We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place exclusive interviews with players coaches and team executives streaming live and always available on demand stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the odyssey app you're listening to kcbs in depth really in order to find quality care you often have to be on a wait list that's months long the people places and issues the bay area is talking about the aggressive advocates who were looking to overrule roe for so long they really had no idea of the consequences they might be opening up in this case there very well may be charges that are appropriate for example trying to obstruct an official proceeding of congress right that is unlawful this is kcbs in depth The tiny microchip, it's a wonder of modern technology, powering everything from our smartphones to our cars to our washing machines. They've become so commonplace that many of us don't even notice how much of our daily routine depends on them. But if you did pause for a moment and traced out the journey that it took for all those chips to make it into just one of your devices, you would uncover a manufacturing process of breathtaking complexity that spans the globe. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, broadcasting throughout the Bay Area and streaming on the Odyssey app. I'm Keith Manconi. The global supply of silicon has some high stakes to it, and it's sparking some major friction. Earlier this month, the U.S. imposed sweeping new import controls that aim to slow China's development of high-end semiconductors. It's a dramatic escalation in the race between these two global superpowers for chip supremacy. And it could have far-reaching consequences for both the global economy and the balance of power across the Pacific. Now, these might sound like overstuffed claims for a dispute over computer chips, but today on the program, our guest is going to get us all up to speed on why the humble transistor is playing an outsized role in shaping world events. That would be Chris Miller, a professor of history at Tufts University and the author of the very well-timed book, Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. Chris Miller, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So in some ways, uh, this might be a bit of a surprising topic. I mean, uh, computer chips are so commonplace that uh, it can be hard to believe that we could ever run out. Uh, You know, that's actually kind of what I was thinking when we started to hear that car manufacturers were having to cut back during the pandemic uh, simply because they couldn't get their hands on enough uh, chips. You know, I was thinking, we make so many of these things can't we just make a few more? Uh, obviously, I'm not a, uh, not a hardware person, but uh, what your book reveals is that uh, when it comes to the modern chip, uh, packing so many transistors onto such a tiny piece of silicon is a feat that very nearly takes the entire globe to pull off. So uh, you can indeed have supply hiccups, and when you do, there are some big 
consequences. Uh, and actually, let's start with that piece of the puzzle. Before we get to U.S.-China ties, uh, give us a sense of just how much of our modern world relies on semiconductors. Well, we often think of semiconductors or computer chips as they're more commonly known as being inside of computers or in smartphones. But in fact, uh, as computing power has spread across the economy, all sorts of devices today rely on chips, whether it's appliances like dishwashers or microwaves or cars, which often have dozens or in some cases even hundreds of chips inside. Almost every device with an on-off switch today has some sort of chip inside, and our economy and our society simply can't function without them. Right, and we have seen some very vivid illustrations of other applications as well. We can also talk about the military applications and the trouble that Russia is running into currently with some of its uh, missiles and, and other military hardware that are getting difficult to deploy because they can't get their hands on enough chips. That's right. Today, most chips go into civilian uses, but around 2% of chips and many of the most advanced chips end up in military use cases. And if you think of what it takes to guide a missile uh, over many hundreds of miles to hit a target precisely, that's a lot of computing power that it needs. And that's advanced ships that need to be in the nose of that missile uh, inside of its guidance computer. And Russia is one of many countries that can't make the most advanced ships at home. So it has to either buy them or otherwise acquire them from abroad. And as Russia's faced more and more difficulties because of Western sanctions and acquiring chips, it's had to smuggle them in from uh, third parties and faces increasing difficulties in doing so. And the metaphor that some folks are using to explain the importance and the centrality of computer chips in the global economy some people are comparing it to oil at this point and drawing that comparison both for uh, oil's scarcity and for the fact that, you know, whoever controls crucial choke points in that supply has uh, a great deal of power and influence over the global economy and uh, even uh, global politics. Uh, do you think that that's an apt comparison? I think it is. And one of the striking things about the chip industry is that it's even more concentrated in terms of its production than oil is. And that's one of the reasons why I called the book Chip War is that there's really a battle for control of these critical choke points. And to give you an example of what I mean, in the oil industry, Saudi Arabia, which is one of the world's biggest oil producers, only pumps 10 to 15 percent of the world's oil supply. By contrast, Taiwan produces 90 percent of the world's most advanced microprocessors and the Dutch company ASML produces 100% of a certain type of machine tool without which you can't make advanced chips. And when you look across the supply chain of chemicals, machines, software that's needed to make advanced chips, you find that often uh, one or two companies control the entirety of a market for the most advanced technology, which creates these choke points uh, that are very difficult for other countries and companies to get around. I really think that that's a point worth flagging again. So we're talking about this technology that undergirds basically everything that we're using on a day-to-day -day basis. And you're saying one company in the entire planet is producing this uh, crucial technology that is, you know, you can't make modern chips without this technology. So really, we're talking about a one company choke point for something that uh, of global importance. Well, one of the challenges with making advanced chips is that it's extraordinarily hard to do and extraordinarily expensive. So if you want to uh, make an advanced chip making facility, it'll cost $20 billion or so. So you need immense scale to do this in an economically efficient way. And that's produced uh, the 
type of market dynamics where you've just got one or two firms in the position uh, that they're in atop each segment of the market. There's just no other way to do it given the amount of investment and capital expenditure involved. And so that's been a very efficient way to structure the industry, but it also does raise the risk of vulnerability uh, if in case any part of the supply chain faces disruption. All right. Well, a lot more to talk about, but I'm going to reintroduce you again real quick. You're listening to KCBS In-Depth, your weekly deep dive into the events and trends shaping life in the Bay Area and beyond. I'm Keith Menconi. Today in the program, we're discussing the immensely complicated global supply chain to make the computer chips in your smartphone and why global superpowers are fighting to make sure that they have a piece of the action. Our guest is Chris Miller, a professor of history at Tufts University, also a fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. His new book is Chip War, the fight for the world's most critical technology. And as we mentioned a little bit earlier, the timing could not be better for the release of this book. It came out uh, towards the beginning of October. And just a few days later, we heard the announcement from the Biden administration of new export controls uh, on on a range of uh, technologies and uh, even touching on to human capital as well, all aimed at curtailing China's advancement on these high-end chips. Uh, Tell us a little bit about what the U.S. is doing there. To start, maybe to set out the strategy or the problem the U.S. is trying uh, to address, the the key issue from the perspective of the U.S. government is not smartphones or PCs, which are a major use case for many chips, but defense systems. And U.S. military systems are as dependent on semiconductors as any other part of uh, modern life. And if you look at what defense strategists, whether in Washington or in other countries, are projecting uh, for the future of military systems, they're planning to become even more reliant on semiconductors over time. And if you envision, for example, an advanced drone flying through a contested battle space, it's going to need a lot of processing power, a lot of memory, a lot of signals processing, and all that means advanced chips. So militaries will become more dependent on chips as time passes. And the United States believes that its primary advantage relative to rivals like China is in computing power. If you look, for example, at military expansion plans in China versus the U.S., there's really no doubt that China is going to be building more ships, more missiles, more airplanes, more drones than the United States. And so the U.S. has to find a way, if it wants to keep its military edge, to match this quantity with the edge in quality. And the Pentagon is betting that the qualitative edge that it's going to uh, best be able to maintain over time is in computing power, which is why it's trying to make sure that China doesn't have access to the most advanced chips and make sure that the U.S. retains access and even increases its ability to produce advanced semiconductors. And so to maintain that advantage, uh, it, it seems like it's taking two broad categories of steps. On the one hand, it's barring exports uh, to China of American-made uh, equipment that produce advanced chips. And then on the other hand, it's also uh, it's also made rules that would bar U.S. nationals and U.S. green card holders from supporting the production of advanced chips in China. And that that second one has really caught a lot of attention because if you uh, if you prevent Americans from supporting these key portions of the China chip making industry, that's a a huge part of the intellectual know how pulled out of that industry all at once. So uh, expand on that a little bit. Uh, what, What are these measures doing? The key goal of the measures is to prevent China from being able to access 
advanced chips, especially the types of advanced chips that undertake artificial intelligence uh, operations in data centers. And so the U.S. has banned the transfer to China of certain types of chips that are designed in the U.S., made uh, largely in Taiwan, and used for data center purposes uh, when data centers are, are undertaking AI applications. So that's the first step in the, the export controls. But then to make sure that China can't domestically produce uh, this type of chips, the U.S. has uh, implemented a, a sweeping set of restrictions to prevent Chinese chip-making facilities from acquiring the types of machine tools that you actually need to produce chips. And a couple of U.S. firms play a dominant role uh, in the production of these machine tools. And the other machine tools that you need to to, to make chips come from U.S. allies like the Netherlands and Japan. So uh, China is almost completely dependent on importing chip-making tools from uh, the U.S., Japan, and the Netherlands. And as a result, it uh, needs to either access these tools or is unable to produce uh, advanced chips. And the third set of the restrictions that is um, particularly important is, as you mentioned, the the personnel restrictions, making it illegal for uh, American citizens or American companies to do business of any sort with uh, listed Chinese chip firms, whether it's work for them or supply them or fix their machines. A whole set of activities has been uh, banned. And so now, from the perspective of U.S. law, it's uh, comparable to working with Iranian missile designers or uh, the North Korean government, uh, as it is to work with certain Chinese chip firms. And the goal is to stop progress in the Chinese chip industry uh, in terms of getting closer to cutting-edge production to guarantee that uh, China can't domestically create the types of advanced AI chips that the U.S. is currently barring it from importing. And will these measures succeed in that regard? How big of an impact will this have on the Chinese chip industry? Chris Miller. Well, it's pretty clear that in the short run, they're going to have a dramatic impact. Uh, the reality is that although China is a big economy and it's a big player in the electronics industry, in electronics, its primary um, impact is in the assembly part of uh, the business. And when it comes to producing chips, China produces hardly any cutting edge chips uh, and all of the chips that it produces are dependent on the import of machine tools and software from the United States, as well as a couple other allied countries. So there's really no easy way to get around these types of restrictions. And at least for the next half decade, probably the next decade, China will really struggle to make much progress um, towards domestically producing uh, the types of tools that it needs. After that point, uh, it's harder to be certain. But for the, the next couple of years, China is going to face uh, really severe Issues And the goal of the strategy from the perspective of the U.S. government is that as the Chinese are held back by these restrictions, the U.S. and the rest of the world chip industry, Taiwan, South Korea, etc., will continue moving forward at the exponential growth rate uh, predicted by Moore's law. And so what today is a already um, meaningful, though those fairly narrow gap between U.S. and Chinese capabilities will grow uh, dramatically over the next couple of years, uh, thereby opening up a gap in computing capabilities uh, that the U.S. military hopes to exploit to retain its qualitative edge. It does seem like a, a bit of an extreme step, though. I mean, there's obviously tensions between the U.S. and, and a lot of uh, other countries in the world, but uh, hypothetically, the U.S. is the 
uh, free trade country. You know, in, in general, we are the ones that uh, are, are boosting free trade around the world, hypothetically. Uh, and so to really shut that off it, with China uh, in this key industry uh, seems like a major escalation. Is uh, am, am I reading that right? This, this seems pretty dramatic. Yeah, I think it is a big shift in uh, U.S. prioritization away from uh, trade, away from trying to integrate China economically toward a uh, more zero-sum view of the relationship in which the primary issue is not China's economy and uh, managing uh, that, but rather the Chinese military and its uh, its its growing um, military expansion and and its success thus far from the U.S. government's perspective in building up a a, a capable um, and advanced military. And so, what we're seeing in these rules is uh, the U.S. government step back from the era of economic integration with China and step into a much more competitive landscape in which uh, a key metric is going to be the the gap between U.S. and Chinese military power. And if you look at dynamics from the perspective of the Pentagon uh, over the past several decades, what we've seen is a deterioration in the U.S. position relative to China's. Um, if you consider back uh, in the mid middle of the 1990s during the last Taiwan Straits crisis when China shot a number of missiles over Taiwan and the U.S. responded by sailing an aircraft carrier battle group through the Taiwan Straits. You know, today we're miles away from that type of scenario. The, the question isn't whether U.S. aircraft carriers can operate in the Taiwan Straits. The question is, can they operate anywhere in the Western Pacific uh, or, or will they be threatened by uh, Chinese missiles? And, and so the reality is that the military balance has swung uh, quite dramatically uh, in the past couple of years, making it unclear whether the U.S. has the capabilities to defend Taiwan. And that's what's really driven the U.S. government to take a step that, as you say, is a big change from uh, the last couple of decades of policy. All right. Well, we're going to bring this conversation a little bit closer to home up next. Uh, real quick, just going to reintroduce you one last time. Once again, this is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Keith Menconi. Today, we're speaking with Professor Chris Miller about his new book, Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. So uh, since uh, we are here in the San Francisco Bay Area, home to Silicon Valley, let's talk a little bit about what this could all mean for Silicon Valley. You've written that America and Silicon Valley in particular are have been falling behind internationally in the race to produce the most advanced uh, chips. I'm curious, uh, hoping you can maybe trace out a little bit of that history for us. And a lot of your book actually focuses on uh, the earlier uh, history of uh silicon and chips and uh, going all the way back to the 1940s, 50s, 60s. So uh, let, let's take that broad historical view for a second. Talk, uh, first of all, remind us why Silicon Valley became the place synonymous with chip manufacture and chip development. And what's gone awry since then? Well, of course, Silicon Valley wasn't called Silicon Valley until uh, the early 1970s after... Valley of Heart's Delight. That's right. That's right. So it, it took the semiconductor industry to give the valley... Uh, its name. And, and the first chip firms uh, began to spring up in the valley, uh, partially by chance. One of the uh, early uh, semiconductor engineers grew up in Palo Alto and his mother lived uh, in Palo Alto. So he decided to set up his first uh, company in Mountain View. So there's a bit of luck involved, but also the valley had a lot of uh, aerospace firms in and around it. 
at the end of World War II. And as the Cold War began, there was an incredible surge of defense dollars into electronics uh, because it was uh, perceived at the time that having more advanced electronics capabilities would be crucial for shaping military systems. Yeah, and w- w- this is a, a global story as well. Uh, after the uh, technology here was uh, first developed in the U.S., it uh, the manufacture of computer chips uh, quickly spread around the globe. Th- that That's absolutely right. And, and the first uh, offshore assembly facilities in East Asia uh, were created by Silicon Valley firms just a couple years after the invention of the first computer chip. So there was a deep connection between uh, East Asia and Silicon Valley from really the earliest days. And from that initial facility in Hong Kong, uh, there quickly emerged uh, uh, similar uh, chip industries in Singapore, in Taiwan, in Korea, and in Japan. And it's really the case that rather than seeing there being separate industries in all of these countries, there emerged an integrated industry where each country specialized in a different part of the production process. And so today, if you look at the production of an advanced computer chip, you can't do it without designers and tools from California, with chemicals from Japan, um, with expertise in actual manufacturing from Taiwan, with uh, packaging and assembly often in uh, Malaysia or elsewhere in Southeast Asia. So there's a really deeply integrated uh, supply chain that has knit together many different countries. Uh, and so although there's certainly competitive aspects between countries, that's part of the the dynamic of chip war, there's also a whole lot of cooperation because international supply chains have been crucial to providing this scale that companies need to sell lots of products and thereby fund their R&D into the next generation, but also to source the ultra-complex materials and tools that they need. It's just so complicated that no country can do it all on their own. Even the United States, which is the biggest player still in the industry across the supply chain, U.S. firms still need to rely on imports from Japan and Europe and elsewhere to make the complex uh, chips that we rely on. But you have suggested that in a lot of respects, the U.S. has fallen behind. In particular, uh, Intel is not playing the same central role that it used to play. What's going on there? And how are U.S. efforts, uh, recent efforts, perhaps going to counteract that. I'm thinking of uh, the CHIPS Act, which was passed over the summer, which is going to direct billions of dollars to building up the semiconductor manufacturing industry within the borders of uh, the U.S. But obviously, you know, they're responding to a perceived problem that there is not enough manufacturing right now. So uh, what's the story there? One of the places where the U.S. has uh, lost market share is in the actual fabrication of chips, the manufacturing of chips themselves. And that's happened for a couple of reasons. One is because in general, it's been cheaper to build manufacturing facilities in East Asia for a variety of reasons, because of labor costs, because of government incentives and tax policy, because of environmental rules has made it 20, in some cases, 30% cheaper to build facilities abroad. And that's led to a dramatic decline in the share of chips that are produced in the U.S. In the 1990s, a third or so of chips globally were produced in the U.S. Today, that number is closer to 10%. And if you look at the most advanced processor chips, today, Taiwan's TSMC, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, produces 90% of the world's most advanced chips. They are able to produce chips more advanced than anyone else in the world. And so the entire world has fallen behind uh, Taiwan in that regard. And the CHIPS Act is designed to uh, try to 
uh, reverse both of these trends, A, the declining uh, share of chips produced in the U.S., and B, the dependence of the entire world on chip making in just a single geography, and especially in a country as uh, vulnerable to geopolitical risks as Taiwan. So the CHIPS Act sets aside $39 billion to uh, provide incentives for firms, both American firms and non-American firms who uh, open new chip making facilities in the United States, especially when they're focused on the types of advanced chips that are today largely produced abroad. So just to make sure that this remains obviously relevant for all of our listeners, uh, curious for your thoughts on what this will all amount to for the American economy, in particular, the economy here in the Bay Area. So we're talking on the one hand about the CHIPS Act, this huge new investment in onshore manufacturing within the semiconductor industry. And we're also talking about these controls that are aimed at stymieing growth within China. Uh, You take that together, and what's the trajectory of America's homegrown chip uh, uh, industry? Uh, Will folks here in the Bay Area notice these differences in the years ahead? Well, I think there will be uh, impact on the Bay Area, and the impact will be differentiated based on um, the the two different pieces of um, a policy change. The, the CHIPS Act is going to inject a lot of money into the chip industry, encourage more facilities to be built, and provide more uh, customers for the machine tools uh, that uh, that go into chip making facilities. And so that's good news for the Bay Area, which still produces many of the machine tools that uh, chip makers rely on. Um, by contrast, the restrictions on China are uh, are 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 not good news for a lot of um, parts of the chip industry because China has been an important uh, market. The U.S. government decided that the strategic ramifications are more important than the economic ramifications. But certainly, a number of firms, including several based in Silicon Valley, are going to lose uh, important customers uh, from this. And so, I think you've got to look at the Chips Act and the restrictions as as a a, a package that. It comes together. The the restrictions come with some downside for uh, certain American firms, at least. The CHIPS Act brings some upside. And so the goal in general is to improve the U.S. strategic position while leaving the industry uh, in general no worse off than when it started. All right. Well, to close this out, would like to give some sense of the stakes of this chip war that we've been talking about so far. Because as you trace out in your book, you know, when we think about these global supply chains, we might be tempted to think that they would just create all these opportunities for cooperation. I need this from you. You need this from me. We got to cooperate with one another. But instead, the way that this is playing out in a lot of cases is it's creating new arenas for competition. And we are seeing these choke points become flashpoints between various countries. So uh, help us understand how does this global supply chain of chips, how do you see that shaping global politics in the years ahead? Because there are some pretty big stakes at, at play. Well, the way the supply chain is structured today is that it mostly involves uh, close U.S. allies or partners, whether it's Japan, European countries, um, South Korea, uh, all of these are countries that have close security relationships with the U.S. as well as close economic relationships. The, the the challenging points are China, which plays a major role in the assembly of chips, and then Taiwan, which is, as we mentioned, the, the biggest producer of advanced processor chips in the world, but is also, of course, a uh, the source of um, 
uh, a great amount of risk in the supply chain because of China's uh, stated goal of, of of taking control of Taiwan. And so uh, the the chip supply chain is going to be uh, inexorably interlinked with the development of the China-Taiwan and the U.S.-China relationship. And although for the past couple of decades we've taken for granted stability in Asia and peace across the region, that's something that I don't think can be counted on uh, in the future. Hopefully it will be maintained, but it's looking far shakier than a decade ago. And that's going to have an inevitable effect on the way chips are produced, the places chips are produced, and the cost of producing them. And the, the real risk is that the geopolitical pressures spill over into the chip supply chain in a potentially disastrous way and knock out uh, the ability to produce so much of the computing power that we rely on. And if that were to happen, the effects wouldn't just be on Taiwan or the tech industry. It'd be a huge shock for the entire global economy. All right. Well, that is a <laughs> bracing look at some of the possibilities that are out there and also just a very helpful window into this industry that obviously affects so many of our lives, but many of us really don't think about very much at all. We have been getting that look one last time from Chris Miller, professor of history at Tufts University. His new book is Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. Chris Miller, thanks so much. Thank you. And thank you all for listening for KCBS and In Depth. I'm Keith Menconi. Stay safe, be well. We'll talk again next week. You've been listening to KCBS In Depth. Get every episode by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and other podcast platforms. Visit kcbsradio.com for more news and interviews. We are the Bay Area's news station, KCBS. Odyssey celebrates Mother's Day, brought to you by T-Mobile. You can count on T-Mobile to help you stay connected on America's largest 5G network. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 